But it is it's my pleasure to be with you this morning. This will be my first Easter sermon. I've never given an Easter sermon before. And, uh, yeah. Um, it, it's not as easy as I thought it was going to be. You know, you would think uh, with Easter, the theme's already picked out for you, pretty much, right? You have to talk about the resurrection. So, <clears throat> I figured, and there's so many texts that sound like you're limited on texts. But that's somewhat... Uh, some of the problem is sometimes you, I want to be here. I want to go over here. No, no, no. This is the verse here. And uh, I got to say that the verse that we're in today, um, it was a battle. Um, four different times throughout the week, uh, my wife can attest to this, I, I said to myself, nope, I'm going to chapter six. I'm going to chapter six. And then inevitably come back like, nah, I'm going back eight, to eight. Then I would study for a little bit, and I'm like, ooh, no, I'm going back. I want to go chapter 7 here. This is good here. Ooh, man, Hebrews is good over here. I'm, all, I'm going over Hebrews. No, I'm going back to Romans 8. Four different times I did this, and finally I just landed on it. I'm like, Hebrews 8. I'm sticking with it. Hebrews 8. Like George Costanza, jerk store. I'm going with that. Um... But yeah, I landed on it, and uh, the Lord was merciful to me. Um, you know, I had a busy week, but um, God is, is very faithful. Um, <clears throat> the resurrection is such a significant event, uh, such a significant doctrine, as, as Phil was alluding to when he came up here. I was like sitting down there, and I'm like, okay, there's my point three, Phil. Be careful. And he's going, oh, no, he's going into, no. Um, but... I, the resurrection is such a significant event and such a key doctrine and so chock full of, of implications. Where does one start? For the resurrection is more than just an event that makes Jesus a, a unique person. The resurrection is more than just an event. Um, it's more than just a miracle. The resurrection is the Christian's essential hope. It is a triumph and victory to which we can claim. And this triumph, this victory, of course, belongs to Christ, but that which Jesus has conquered, he has done so on our behalf. And therefore, this idea of, of victory, this idea of, of triumph, is, is an idea that, that is that ours to bear. I must admit that the resurrection is a doctrine that I have not grasp the gravity and importance of. So central and essential it is for every other aspect of the gospel. Our text this morning highlights these things. Now, we tend to focus so much on the cross, and rightfully so. But <clears throat> the gospel without the resurrection is no gospel at all. And this could be said of all the essential truths of the gospel, Despite the impact of Christ's teaching, despite his miracles, despite his atoning sacrifice, they would be of no use for us if Jesus does not rise from the dead. The resurrection affirms and empowers these things. Without the cross, um, without it, the cross is a despairing event. And this is made evident in the lives of the apostles. You have the, these 12 or 11 at the time, disciples, who have been sitting under the ministry of Jesus Christ, who have been given the authority to, to perform miracles. And, and what happens to them right after Christ's death? They're scattered. They hide and, and, and cower. They go right back to the very thing that they were doing uh, before the Lord called them to ministry, fishing. And we get these, these men who go from this to being a handful of men that change the course of the world. And it is the resur resurrection that becomes a turning, turning point in the lives of these men when they encounter the risen Lord. Quite the change we see in them from self-centered, faith-lacking, foot-in-mouth-inserting buffoons that we read of in the gospel accounts to the courageous men of faith standing against the world and all of its authorities. 
We see Peter himself going from the Jesus-denying coward to being that bold preacher on the day of Pentecost. And this preaching is, is empowered by the Holy Spirit that filled them on the day of Pentecost, but to what message was it that they were empowered to preach? Acts 4.33, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It was not their testimony of, of the cool signs and wonders he did. It was not the testimony of the signs and wonders that they performed, that they were able to speak in tongues now, which so many churches would be obsessed with. It was the testimony of the risen Lord. It was this testimony that changed a zealous rabbi from Tarsus who once re relentlessly persecuted the church only to become one of its greatest heralds of his testimony. What was Paul's turning point? Acts 9, 27, 1 Corinthians 15, 8 tells us an encounter with the risen Christ. It is the resur resurrection that flips the cross from a moment of tragedy and seemingly defeat to a moment of triumph and victory. It is the resurrection that fills the gospel with the hope and gives us to his people a sense of hope and victory, an unshakable assurance. But how often does this describe me or you? Nor does it seem to describe the vast majority of God's people today. Now, I'm not talking about an arrogance, but a, but a humble confidence and assurance. This is, how, is this how you would describe your walk with the Lord? The picture that seems to be often conveyed of the Christian is one who, are, who is merely practitioners of a certain religion, who have given up and denied themselves of certain things and practice certain things all in the hopes of hopefully becoming saved and having eternal life. The idea of the Christian being one who is triumphant and full of hope, full of assurance, seems to be a concept that's, that is foreign among us today. But it is this concept here in the 8th chapter that Paul's primary theme is, finding its zenith in this resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're not there, please turn over to the Romans chapter 8. I'm going to pray real quick for us, for our time. Father God, I humbly come before you right now, and I am weak, Lord. I am tired. But that's where I, where I need to be. I want to know confidence in myself, but to be completely reliant upon you, Holy Spirit. Would you speak through me today? Would you speak to your people? Would your word be proclaimed faithfully and purely? Would you use it to edify and encourage and build up your people for the furthering of the gospel? And Lord, if there be any here today who does not know you, it is my prayer, my plea that God, you would convict them this morning. May your word have its way, cut them, expose them, Lord, as it does. Reveal to them their need of you. Lead them to repentance and to a saving knowledge of Christ. And I thank you, Lord, for this undeserved opportunity and privilege to bring forth your word. We ask and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. And we were looking at 31 and 32 here. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The book of Romans is, is broken up in, into different sections. Uh, chapters 1 through 4 is considered to be the section in which the apostle speaks of human depravity and, and um, us being guilty under the law and faith. Chapter 5 and 8 are considered the next part of the section where Paul lays out 
things such as our peace with God and life in Christ through him, a new life in Christ, being released from the bonds of the law and sin, the life we now have in Christ and the future glory that awaits all because of the work of our Savior. He then concludes this long train of thought by asking the rhetorical question, if God be for us, in light of everything that, that he has laid out, if God be for us, who then can be against us? What should we make of these things, he says? These things here speaks of all that is contained in chapters 5 through 8. What is the takeaway, Paul asks? It is that of assurance. Surely, the pre preservation of the saints. Paul's desire is to strengthen the believer by assuring them of the confidence that we may have in the works of Christ. The, the apostle marvels at this thought, this idea that God in all his holiness and greatness stands for us. And why is this such a marvel? Because he is alluded to in chapters 1 through 4, the depraved, depraved state of mankind. We are sinners. We are enemies of God, as Scripture says. We, like sheep, have all gone astray. There is no one good, no, not one, Romans 3. Humanity must understand that their greatest problem is that they are at odds with the holy God. Sin has made us an enemy, and left to ourselves, we remain under his just wrath. But God has done these things. These things here, is, like I said, all the things he has, he's alluded to in the last uh, four chapters. And he's redeemed us through his son. God, who was most offended by our sin, who would be our greatest enemy, is now for us. And that's one point I wanted to make. We often say that, oh, Jesus rescued us from our sin. Jesus rescued us from, from Satan and hell and death, and these are all true. But what did Jesus rescue us from is from God himself. It was us who were under the wrath of God due to our sins. And it is Christ's atoning work that rescues us from that wrath. The apostle's point is, this God who was once our great enemy, who we have set up as ourselves to be an enemy, we, by turning to sin, has made him our enemy. He says, this great holy God in whom we have offended has now become our ally, who's now become for us rather than against us. In light of this, all who may oppose us pales into comparison. If God be for us, who can be against us? Let opposition come. It will make no difference, for God is for us. And what confidence do we have that God is for us? It is here in verse 32. He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. And here is my first point. The resurrection assures us of who Christ is is the resurrection assures us of who christ is god does not shortchange us when it comes to the sacrifice that is needed for our atonement he does not send merely a man he does not send something that cannot fully appease him cannot fully atone for our sin cannot satisfy the wrath of the father against our sins he gives us his one and only son. The father's voice from heaven at Christ's baptism declares of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, Matthew 3.17. And again in Matthew 17.5, at the Mount of Transfiguration, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, listen to him. There was no mistaking that Jesus claimed this title for himself, John 5, 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. But there's another way in which Jesus is declared the son of God. Look over at Paul's opening to the book of this, uh, the opening of this book in Romans chapter 1, 
Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Paul opens with the words, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was, here it is, declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by what? His resurrection from the dead. It is the resurrection that verifies the true claims of Christ. It is the resurrection that verifies that Christ is indeed the son of the living God. Jesus was not merely a good teacher, a good moral teacher that, that probably existed in some time of history. Jesus was not merely a, a prophet, nor is he an angel. He is the son of the living God, the second person of the Trinity, God in flesh. This very thought amazes the apostle and should amaze us as well. For God the Father gives to us the God uh, gives to us God the Son. This is why with confidence the apostle can assert that since God has given to us his own Son for our good, given to us that which is most precious to him, how he not give us all other things for our good? And I have often been blown away by this in my times of doubt, how I can doubt at times. Because God has provided for me, for you, if you are in Christ, your greatest need. When you were least deserving of it. And when it cost him the most. How will he not provide all other things? Paul here is assuring the believers by revealing he who has done the greater will surely do the lesser. We will examine what all things are in verse 32 here in a little. Moving on, verse 33 and 34, he says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the, is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. The apostle, with the logical conclusion that if God be for us, who can be against us, then therefore who can bring a charge against God's people? For he has justified. Here we will examine our second point. The resurrection assures us of what Christ did. The resurrection assures us of what Christ did. The choice of the word elect here is very intentional by the apostle. His desire is that of assurance, right? The elect are those whom God has predestined for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, Ephesians 1.5. This title is being used to bring about an assurance to the believer. God is not one who is dealing with things by the seat of his pants. He's, he's not a God who has plan B. He doesn't have to come up with something new. He is sovereign and he sovereignly ordains all things. And salvation has been set in eternity past for these elected people of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones on this says, What unworthy views we often have of the Christian. A good man, one trying to live a good life, one who has taken his decision. All the emphasis is on man. But this is not the apostles' teaching. A Christian is one of God's elect. He does not say, Who shall bring a charge against those who believe in Jesus Christ? That is not strong enough. It leaves the position dependent upon the belief alone, our belief alone. He says, rather, who shall bring a charge against God's elect, end quote. This doctrine brings about great comfort and assurance for the believer, which is Paul's desire here. The apostle uses legal verbiage here in saying, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is it that will come forward to present their case? The law of God may be presented, for we are guilty under it. Paul points out this in, in chapter 7 of, of his epistle. The law makes known to us that we are sinners guilty through and through. 
We have transgressed the law and sinned against God, and the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. But Christ came and fulfilled the law on our behalf. Matthew 5, 17 and 18, our Lord says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus couldn't just come down to earth and go straight to the cross. He had to live the life that we were unable to live. He had to accomplish that which Adam failed to. He had to live that perfect life, had to obtain that perfect righteousness in order to impute it to us. <clears throat> this is not enough, however, for the wages of sin is death. Jesus then takes upon himself the guilt, shame, and death that was meant for me, for you. He sheds his blood on your behalf on that cross. He satisfies the wrath of God for our sins. Romans 5, 9, we have now been justified by his, by his blood. How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? God has justified us in Christ. To be justified is, is again, another legal term. It has a connotation of, of a, a judicial declaration that we are not only forgiven of our sins, but that we have been made righteous in his sight, as if we had never sinned at all. He treats you as if you were Christ, because on the cross, he treated Christ as if he were you. Therefore, who can bring a charge against the people of God? Who can condemn, condemn us? We are justified by the death of Christ. Those in Christ can no longer be condemned because Christ was condemned. Jesus is the one who died. But the apostle does not stop there. He says, more than that. I like the King James Version. It says, yea, rather. Christ died, yea, rather. More than that, who was raised. It's almost as, as Paul is, is writing this and, and he, he suddenly realizes as he's writing, he says, who can condemn us? Who can, who can bring a charge against us? Because we have been justified. God has justified us. And we know this because of his death. No, no, we know this because he has risen. More than that. Yet rather, he has risen. Not only does this, uh, or why does he mention the resurrection? Not only mention it, but in fact he says more than that. Because it's the resurrection that assures the believer that we have been justified by his death. Paul is saying we can have assurance that we have been justified and forgiven of our sins because Christ has died. But we can have even greater assurance of our justification. Why? Because he was raised. It is only in the light of the resurrection that you can truly understand the meaning of Christ's death. The resurrection confirms our justification at the cross. Romans 4, 24 and 25 says, It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is not to say that the resurrection justifies us, but the resurrection is a proclamation that the cross was sufficient. That his death didn't did indeed atone for our sins. And his sacrifice satisfied the wrath of God. The resurrection is the affirmation of Jesus' words that it is indeed finished. The power of the cross is full because the tomb of Christ is empty. If you want to write that down, you can. I don't get too many of those. So I'm sure it's been said before. If Jesus' death was not satisfactory, then he would not have, then he would have stayed dead. If Jesus does not rise, then we could have some charges placed against us, could we not? We could say that, that death overcame him just as it does everybody else. Just as it has with Muhammad, Buddha, all the great 
religions of the world, not great, but all the famous religions of the world, let's say, well-practiced religions of the world, none of them have this claim. We can be assured of our salvation, assured of our justification, because Christ has risen. <clears throat> if Jesus' death is not satisfactory, we are without hope. We have no confidence in the cross. We would still be dead in our sins. If he does not rise, how could we expect to? All hope would be lost. And this is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and 19. Phil alluded to it earlier. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you're still in your sins. He goes on to say, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have, been, who have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this only, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It is on this basis that the Christian may have their assurance of their justification. If Christ doesn't rise, then we, the apostle says, are to be the most pitied of all people because we are practiced in religion that cannot save. But Christ has risen, and therefore we do have this assurance. We do have this hope. It is on this basis that the Christian may have their assurance of their justification. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 Hell has been stripped of its victory in the lives of those who are in Christ. Now let us look to verse 34. The end here, 34, 34b, says of Christ, He has risen, and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Here we will examine our third point. The resurrection assures us of what Christ is doing. Other verses state that Christ is seated at the right hand of God, uh, as Colossians 3.1, Ephesians 1.20 and, and that's the idea here, idea here, is that Christ has been seated at the right hand of God. Now, that he is, the, the idea of him being seated is, is very symbolic. It's symbolic of two things. The right hand of a king was a place of honor and was a place of authority. Jesus states in, in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The one who humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2, 8, now reigns in power in all authority and is given the name that is now above all other names. Being seated also signifies that his work is complete. The priest was to always be standing, that the, the great high priest, to make atonement. The idea of sitting would represent and be representative of, of that your work was complete. This is what it signified. The, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, 11 through 12, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This sitting down signifies that there is nothing left to be done. There is nothing left to be done concerning our sin if we are in Christ. This, again, assures the believer of the salvific status for if God has already awarded Christ for saving us, how then can we have any doubt that our salvation is secure? If we do, in fact, belong to him. Christ has been awarded the victory. That right there is, is, our, is a great assurance that we have. Our text tells us that, that, is not just, that he's not just sitting there, that he's interceding for us. He's not interceding on behalf of, of our salvation. I always kind of had this mindset that, um, you know, that's what, that's what Jesus is doing. You know, uh, 
kind of like Moses. You know, God's about to destroy the Israelites. He's like, ah, Lord, don't do it, please. For your name's sake, don't destroy them. I kind of feel like that's the same with me. When I sin and mess up, Jesus is like, oh, Lord, don't destroy him. Lord, he's saved. He's saved by grace. You know, but that's not, that's our, we've already talked about that. He's already accomplished that on our behalf. We've already concluded that he has accomplished that work. This intercession is, is, is descriptive of his mediatorial work on our behalf. As Adam was once our representative, we have a new representative before the Father. He intercedes on our behalf, securing for us all the benefits of his death. Charles Hodge states it perfectly by saying, quote, The object of the high priest in going into the holiest of all once a year was to obtain certain benefits for the people. First was the forgiveness of sins, then all the blessings needed from God for their daily lives, the goodwill of God and the blessings following the goodwill. Our Lord does exactly the same for us in heaven. End quote. This is why the author of Hebrews encourages us to now let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. Hebrews 4.16 And it would go as follows. If God has indeed elected us for this faith, he will, he will be faithful to supply all that is needed to ensure our preservation in it. And we have this confidence because we have our great high priest who intercedes for us. God does not save us and then leaves us to defend to fend for ourselves and tell us to figure it out. I have done my part. Now you do yours. You now go in your own strength and finish the work. No, no, no. He saves us through and through. Christ is interceding for us in our time of pain. He is interceding in our time of hurts. He is interceding in our time of fear. How comforting this truth is. Was this not the cry of Job? We spent the last seven years in Job. But Again and again, we, we hear him plead. for He's desired for a mediator to intercede between he and God. Job 9.33, Job 16.21. And we have this in Christ. We can be assured of this because of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, you do not get the ascension. And without the ascension, you do not get the intercession. This is a great assurance for us who are in Christ. We get a glimpse of Christ's intercessory for us, or intercession for us, in John chapter 17. I'm not going to go over the whole thing, but Jesus' high priestly prayer for his disciples, I want to point out a few things. Jesus prays for their perseverance and strength to face the world and to be kept. From the evil one. Verses 14 and 15 says, The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He then prays for their sanctification. Verse 17, Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification is, is to be, for us to be set apart in order that we grow in holiness so that we are not led by this, so that we are led by the Spirit and not by the flesh. These are the three, three great enemies of the Christian the flesh, the world, and the devil. We, in our natural state, are, are sinners and are a slave to sin. Jesus says in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. However, because of the atoning work of Christ, on our behalf, we have been set free from sin and have been become slaves of God, Romans 8, 22. What of the world, the other great enemy? Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are, are not of the world, 
but I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you, John 15, 19. However, Jesus then says, just a little later in chapter 16, verse 33, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And what of our great adversary, the devil? Satan's greatest weapon against humanity is their legal debt to the law that we, are, we were under. But Christ has taken that debt and paid it in full. Colossians 2, uh, 14 and 15 says, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this is set aside and nailed to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Our enemy has been disarmed. Our enemy has been triumphed over. That great accuser can no longer use the law's demand and our failure to keep them against us. For Christ has dealt with them at Calvary. And this is confirmed by his resurrection. Verse 35 states, Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? This leads me to my final point. The resurrection assures us of our future hope. We see here in verse 35, it says, Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? What is the motive behind all that we've discussed? All that has been done on our behalf? Is it your deeds? Is it your good works? It's because you have more faith in another? No. It's because of the sovereign love of Christ. The motive behind all this is love. God's love for us through Christ Jesus. And this love of Christ has paid our ransom, reconciled us to God, made us heirs with Christ, and given us eternal life. And nothing can separate us from this love that saves. Not even the sword, which is a, another word for death. And this is huge, for this is the last great enemy of all humanity. That is the enemy of death itself. Death is the great fear of man, whether they admit it or not. Death is that ever fearful abode that steals our very breath and weakens our knees when it's directed toward us, does it not? The sting of death makes us contemplate our mortality makes us contemplate our frailty, our guilt, and the fear of what awaits us beyond it. We in society do all that we can to avoid it, to prolong it. But it is unavoidable. And it will come to us all. In fact, the very reason I stand before you today in this pulpit it's because of death, a death that took place. Death can ever be even the fear of a Christian, but it shouldn't be. It can cause us to doubt our salvation, cause us to coward in fear of it. But what is the remedy? Yea, rather, Christ who has risen. This is the remedy, the resurrection. Jesus has conquered death. He has conquered the grave. He has conquered hell. Hebrews 2.14, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through a fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
A proper understanding of the resurrection gives the Christian a proper understanding of death. John Flavel says, quote, Did Christ meet death with such a heavy heart? Let the hearts of Christians be the lighter for this when they come to die. For the bitterness of death was all squeezed into Christ's cup. He was made to drink up the very dregs of it. That so our death might be the sweeter to us. Alas, there is nothing now left in death that is frightful or troublesome. End quote. Death to the unbeliever is a fearful foe. But for the Christian, for those who have been saved and who have been justified, it is a welcomed friend. A welcome transport. Death for the believer is the beginning of true life. The resurrection assures this. The resurrection is also the Christian assurance that we too will be risen. It is our guarantee that we shall rise, not only rise, but rise unto a glorified state thus completely undoing the effects of sin. Romans 8, 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give to you your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Our salvation does not merely save the soul, but the whole of the man. It saves to the outermost. Our salvation includes not only the redemption of our souls, but the redemption of our bodies. What does future hope produce in us? What does this future hope produce in us? What does it invoke in the Christian? Endurance. Perseverance. To face whatever lay in store for us. Whatever we have to face tomorrow. Whenever it Times get tough, and you got to dig down deep. The resurrection assures us that we have this future hope. Imagine with me, if you will, that you are a prisoner of war. I'm not too good on history, so just pick your favorite war and go with that. You're locked in the cage with other fellow prisoners. And you're beaten, you're shamed, you're humiliated, you're starved, day in and day out. And one day they bring another American soldier and they beat him and they throw him in the cage with you. But there's something different about him. He still has a smirk behind his bloody battered face a gleam of hope in his eyes. And you laugh and say, it's going to be the same tomorrow, but this doesn't seem to fade him, face him. And sure enough, tomorrow comes and he is taken, he is beaten, starved, ridiculed, mocked, humiliated, and thrown back in. Yet still, this this gleam of hope is with him. And finally you ask, I don't understand. Are you a glutton for punishment? What is it with you? It's not going to end. Why do you smile? Why do you have hope? He says, because when I was captured, I was coming from something. I know something that you do not. When I was captured, I was coming from a meeting in which we were going over the surrender of the enemy. I know you don't know this, but the war has already been won. And any day, our troops are going to walk through those gates and release us. It may not be today, 
It may not be tomorrow, but it is assured. The enemy's been defeated. We are victorious. How then would your demeanor be going into that punishment the next day? Could you not, with all the more perseverance, endure it? And not only endure it, but endure it with a smile, the gleam of hope in your eyes. Because you know that any day you will be freed of it. The victory and triumph that I spoke of earlier that should characterize believers is not dependent on our current circumstances but should be present in the midst of our circumstances, whatever they be, tribulation, distress, persecution, even in the midst of death. Because no matter what circumstances we may find ourselves in, we can stand assured of the end result. The resurrection assures us of this victory, of this future hope. This future hope that has been won on your behalf, if indeed you are in Christ. The resurrection is evidence that the promises of God are true. The Christian, therefore, is not one who walks in uncertainty and doubt. The Christian is not one who hopes to be saved, but because of the conquering power of the resurrection knows for sure he is saved. And they walk in accordance to this victory despite what life may bring their way. In closing, I must say and address, I never assume that everyone in the room knows Christ. And there is most likely those in this room who do not. You've never seen yourself as that sinner. You've never seen yourself under the wrath of God. You've never come to the point of the end of yourself and, and pleaded for Christ to, to forgive you. Then I would say the resurrection is bad news for you. Bad news for all who are outside of Christ. For the same reason, it is good news for those who are in it. The resurrection is evidence that God fulfills his promises and that his word is true. And just as he said he would rise, so he has said he will return. This time, he will not bear a cross, but a sword. Death is evermore your enemy. And you should tremble in fear of it, for there is no hope that awaits you. The only assurance that you have is that of judgment, condemnation, and everlasting hell. If you have never surrendered your life to him today, Right now is the day of salvation. Would you repent? Would you cry out to him? Would you place your trust, your hope, your assurance in the only name under heaven giving among men which we must be saved? Acts 4.12. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope today's message was an encouragement to you. I hope that we can walk away from this knowing that we, because of Christ, are victorious. That we are triumphant. And in that knowledge, in the assurance of the resurrection, can face 
anything that life throws at us. Let these words encourage you this Easter that we are more than conquerors. How? By looking upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. By reflecting and placing our trust in what Christ did for us in the past. By remembering his advocacy for us in the present. And by anticipating our assured hope and state with him in the future. This is the power of the resurrection. This is the assured blessing that we have. And I will end with Paul's words to the first Corinthians. He says in uh, chapter 15, starting at verse 15, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, we, we humbly come before you. We thank you so much for the resurrection, for the cross, for our redemption, for our justification. The fact that you would die, that you would send your son to pay the penalty for a wretch like me. Lord, may we marvel at this this Easter. May we be in awe of your work through Christ. And may we find our assurance in the conqueror, Jesus Christ, who did not stay dead, but who has risen. This is the conquering assurance of the resurrection. We thank you for it, Lord. We praise you for it. And as we sing these songs to you, may we pour our hearts in thanksgiving and praise to you who is worthy of all. And if there be anyone here who remains unrepentant, I pray that your words would weigh on them for the next hour, for the next day, for the next week, and it would gnaw at them, oh Lord, until it finally breaks that hardened heart. And they place the trust, their trust in you, in Christ, who is our hope. We give you the thanks. We give you the praise. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.